Hey guys, if we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. It is great to see you all. And um, I would just like to say, how about we pray as we look at God's word this morning? Let's pray. Uh, Father God, as we look at uh, these, these few chapters, which are just gory and bloody, uh, Lord, help us to see uh, who you are in them. Lord, we know that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting. And so these, these chapters are too. And so as we look at them, we pray that you would speak to us through them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I remember a number of years ago talking to a, to a friend of mine, and, and he's, he wasn't a Christian then, and I'm not sure if he is now. I've lost touch. But I said, what, we, we talked about why he isn't a Christian. And he talked about growing up in, in the church, and he remembered his family just falling apart. It was a very violent family. It was a terrible family. And then he would go to church on Sunday and he would see pictures of Jesus or God. And they were really kind of, he talked about how they were effeminate and they were really nice and really gentle. And what he, what he thought of when he was a teenager, he made this connection that everything at home that's going wrong the God that I'm seeing here in pictures cannot actually, can't actually help. Because how can you have this kind of really nice, gentle Jesus, this really nice, gentle God who really just is there? He talked about, you know, carrying lambs and that kind of thing. How can he help me with what's happening at home? I, I want to ask you this question. When you view God, what is he like? What is God like? Do you have a, a, a picture like my friend did uh, of this nice, gentle God that is always gentle, that is kind of like, you, you know, we've all, all got this kind of old man that we know or old lady that we know who's nice and gentle and never says anything harsh or anything like that. Or is your, or have you got a different view of God? You, you see, we're going to have a look at, at a few chapters of the Bible, and God is a warrior in these passages. In fact, I would say that if you have a look at the Bible, God is pictured as a warrior far more than he is pictured as gentle. He's pictured far more as a warrior than he is pictured as gentle. And so I would like to say to my, my friend who said, actually, this God can't help me. I'm going to say, well, the, the God of the Bible can. He can actually help you. Now, here's the thing. God as a warrior is, as, is an extremely confronting image. It's a very, very, very confronting image. In fact, some of us uh, don't like it. I know that there has been people at church who have said, actually, I've been reading through the book of Joshua and there's all these blood and guts and I, I, I really don't like it. There's, and in fact, some of you have said to me that you don't like the idea of God being a warrior. It's too militaristic. I don't like it. But think about that argument for a second. It is actually guided by emotions. Now, well, it says to follow our hearts and our hearts and our emotions are the chief arbiter of what is right and wrong and what we will do and not do. And yet we all know people, when they follow the heart, that got them wrong. Think about through history. 
how many evil people were just following their heart. And so when we think about God, we, our, our idea is not to follow our heart and our emotions, is to actually have a look at what, how God has revealed himself. And, and as, as we, are, you know, this is a Christian church, and we believe that God reveals himself in his word in the Bible. And so we're going to look at, at this, this warrior God today, this warrior God today. And we're going to see three things as we look at this passage. We're going to see God's enemies, God's war, and God's justice. God's enemies, God's war, and God's justice. Well, let's have a look at the, the, the first point, God's enemies. And let's look at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It says this, now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. And the people of Gibeon had made a treaty with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai and all, and all its men were good fighters. Now, what you've got to realize is that what we've seen so far in the book of Joshua is that Israel has come from the, the, the Jordan River and then attacked Jericho. It's gone up to Ai. And then it, basically the, um, the people of Gibeon have also sided with Israel. And so there's a sense in which what Israel has done here has uh, they've defeated or gotten on side basically this strip in the middle of Canaan. That is that, that they've cut Canaan in half. And therefore, there's a sense in which they, they control Canaan from this vantage point. And that's why the king of Jerusalem is, is really concerned. And so what, do, what does he do? Have a look, verse 5. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon joined forces. They moved up all with their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. So what you've got is you've got the kings of the southern cities in Canaan coming together before God, before uh, Israel, and they're attacking Gibeon, which is Israel's uh, ally. But then if you have a look at, at the next chapter, chapter 11, you see the same thing happening. Verse 1 of chapter 11, this is now the northern kings after the southern kings have been defeated. When Jabin, king of Hatsor, heard this, he sent to, word to Joab, king of Madon, and the kings of Shimron and Axfar, he, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains in the Aravas, south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and Naphoth Dor in the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. So what you've got here is you've got in both chapter 10 and chapter 11, you've got a, a, a great uh, multitude of armies coming together, a great uh, group of people together. Now, what, I, what we saw last week, what I said last week is, is true of this week. 
what we've got to realize about is that Canaan was a very fractured and divided place. Um, we have got uh, these uh, political correspondences uh, called the Amarna letters, where we know that, that kings in these passages that I've read out hated each other's guts around this time. And so for them to come together against Israel showed that Israel was this huge, huge, huge threat. And yet what we've got to see is that it's not just, they're not warring just against Israel. They are warring against God. When the Bible uses the language of kings coming together against God's people, it is always saying, well, they're not only coming against God's people, but they're coming against God. Uh, uh, you know, and we saw this in the book of Revelation in chapter 19, where the kings of the world band together. They come together against Jesus. And that, that uh, section of, of Revelation is actually quoting the book of Joshua here or alluding to it, that this is a conscious decision of kings getting together to go against Israel. And there's a sense in which when we trace that through, that banding together of kings, that here we see it is a conscious choice to go to, to war against God and his people. This is a conscious choice. And there's a sense in which they are declaring war on God. If we have a look at what the Bible says about sin, the Bible says about humanity, what it actually says is that sin is not some small little thing. It is actually declaring war on God. And we can have a look at the, these uh, passages and say, oh, well, you know, it's terrible that people would, you know, these people would declare war on Israel and its God. But if we're honest, I think what the Bible says is that we've all sinned a fall short of the glory of God. We've all declared war on God. See, it's, it's a bit like this. I'm sorry to use a basketball illustration, but, but just stick with me on this one. I think you'll get it, right? Even if you're not into basketball, but you, you probably should be. Um, a number of years ago, I read this book by Phil Jackson, and he was the coach of the LA Lakers and the Chicago Bulls. And he talked about um, uh, dealing with Kobe Bryant, one of the greatest players of all times, but, but kind of egotistical also. He, he said that one, one time at training camp, they got a, a bunch of young players in, and he pulled Kobe Bryant aside, and he said, hey, Kobe, um, there's a bunch of young guys. This is a new offense. We're running them through. So for this next scrimmage, what I want you to do is just every time you get the ball, you know, pass it and get everyone involved. And so they, they play basketball in a scrimmage for about an hour. And every time Kobe Bryant got the ball, he didn't pass it. He shot it every single time for an hour. It didn't matter how many people were on him. It didn't matter the shot he took. It didn't matter who was open. He shot it every single time. He walked off after uh, Phil Jackson called game, staring at his coach with this icy stare as if to say, no one tells Kobe Bryant what to do. I am my own king. And the problem with us is that what we, we, we've done that. We all stare at God and say, God, guess what? I don't want you to be my, my king. I'm my own king. 
we, we, and we band together as groups of people kind of against what God would have and what would have us be and would have us do. Don't we see that in society where we're doing that? See, in other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. We, we are rebels who need to lay down our arms. We need radical repentance. We need to see that instead of God being king and we are at war with him, so sorry, instead of us being king and we're at war with God because he is trying to be our king, we've got to lay down our arms and say, you are our king. A lot of people have asked the question to me that, that if, if um, the people of Canaan, uh, what would they have to do to be saved from this army? And I keep saying all they would have to do is lay down their arms and trust in the God of the scriptures. That's what Rahab did. That's all they needed to do. But they would rather be at war with this conquering army and their God rather than do that. And that is us, isn't it? We will, A lot of us would rather be at war with God than repent. And repentance, repentance is hard and is painful. The, the, the thing that I always think of when I, when I think of repentance and, and, and changing is C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Give me a wave if you've read that or at least seen the movie. Some of you guys have. I, I always think of um, Eustace, and uh, he, he's, he's saying, uh, there's a quote from the book, which I think is quite funny. He said, here was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. If you've read the book, Eustace was actually a terrible kid. And, um, you, you know, at one point in Narnia, he's, he becomes a dragon. He's a dragon because he's such dragon-like. He's such a terrible person. But he needs to change, and he meets Aslan. Aslan, who is depicted as, as a lion, but he's the Jesus figure. And so when he sees Aslan, Aslan changes him. And he's, he, he's how, it, how it's told in the book. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I, pretty, I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I lay down flat on my back to let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. When he began pulling off my skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hit, it's like bilio, but it's so fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it to myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as peeled switch. And I was smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that, that much for I was very tender underneath and had no skin and he threw me into the water it smarted like anything but only for a moment after that it became perfectly delicious and as soon as i started swimming and splashing i found that all the pain had gone from my arm 
And then I saw why I turned into a boy again. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what God does in our lives? That there's a sense in which what we've got to have done is, is the old has got to be taken away. And, and, what, and how God does that is changing our hearts so that we're not the king of our lives, that he is the king of our lives. That is repentance. So that we become exactly who we're called to be. And that is people who worship God as king. So if you're here and you don't trust in Jesus, the Bible's clear that you have declared war on God, but he invites you back through, through the death and resurrection of Jesus to repent, to go into that, that powerful and yet sometimes painful work that God does in your life to come and bow the knee to Jesus and, and bow to him as king. Have you done that? So, so God's enemies we've seen here, but let's have a look at God's war. And what I want you to see in, the, in this section is that God, this is God's war. This is not, not Israel's war primarily. It's God's war. He is in control. Have a look at verse 8 with me of chapter 10. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. None of, not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them. Uh, completely at Gibeon, Israel pursued them along the, the road going up to Beth Horan and cut them down all the way to Azekar Makedah as they fled before Israel. Excuse me, on the road down from Beth Horan to Azekar, the Lord hurled large house stands down on them, and more of them died on the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Flip down to verse 14. There has never been a day like it before or since a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Have a look at verse 25 with me. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, because be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Can you see the picture all the way through? And there's many verses we could look at in these three chapters. It is God fighting. This is God's war. God is doing this. Oh, yes, Israel is fighting, but actually God is, is the one giving them all the victories. This is God's war. But here's the problem. I was sent uh, this week by one of you, um, and, I, I, and I do want to talk about this because a few of you have brought this up, and it's an important thing to talk about. One of you sent me a, a video of a, a preacher. I won't let uh, I, I'll let you guess what country this person is from, but he was preaching from these these chapters, chapters ten to twelve, and he was talking about a war that had gone on in Iraq recently in the last ten years, and how you know if if uh, I think Barack Obama or whoever was the, I've given you the country way, but whoever's the president at the time followed the book of Joshua, they would have won totally and there would be peace and everything. And the person asked me this question, well, can, is Joshua saying as Christians, we should go to war with our world? And can I just say, I don't think that, I don't think that's right at all. 
if you have a look at, at the Bible, God chose a specific country, Israel, and gave her a mission and a war for a reason. When Jesus came, God's people weren't, were no longer the, the nation of Israel, but God's people are now anyone who bows the knee to Jesus. So one country, whether it be America or Australia or Afghanistan or whatever, it doesn't matter, one country is not God's country. In fact, God is concerned for the whole world now. And therefore, um, one country doesn't have the right or one leader doesn't have the right to say, God told me to go to war. Because that, because of Jesus and the way that Jesus changes history, that's not the way that God works in the world now. He doesn't work through a country. He works through a people group. And so if anyone was to say to me that Joshua says that a country should go to war in exactly the same way, or God has told a country or a leader to go to war, I will be saying that's not what the Bible says. But the Bible does say we are still at war. The Bible says it's a spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, it says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Is God still at war? Absolutely, but it's spiritual. Are we still at war? Absolutely, but it's spiritual. And our weapons aren't clubs or spears or, or swords or guns. No, no, our weapons are prayer, our evangelism, our service, our encouragement. In fact, we are not as Christians strongest when we are wielding a weapon or standing up. We are strongest when we are on our knees in prayer. Uh, a bunch of you guys came to the prayer meeting yesterday. And can I just say that was the, our church at its strongest. When we banded together, when we came together to, to ask God to work in our world. And so if you came to the, the prayer meeting yesterday, there's a sense in which that was an act of war, an act of spiritual war, right? But also when you think of spiritual warfare, it actually changes the way we think about the way we serve. Uh, I've had a number of, uh, of people who at our church, dear, dear people who I love, and yet they come to me and they say, well, I'm really, really old. I can't do much. I wish I was younger because I would do X, Y, Z. And I say, so, but what do you do like with all your time? And they say, well, I pray and I ring people up and, and let them know that I'm praying for them, all this kind of stuff. And I said, do you realize that you are one of our strongest warriors at church? Because what we do as people who are engaging in spiritual warfare is we pray. And so maybe you can't serve on a roster or anything. But guess what? When you are praying for your brothers and sisters, when you are praying for the gospel to go out, you're actually working as, a, as one of God's amazing warriors. And you know, the flip side to this is this, that, that you could be serving and you could be doing a lot, but if you are not engaging in prayer, if you are not, not doing these kind of th things, if you're not evangelizing, well, are you really 
doing the work that God wants you to do. So yes, th there is God's war back here in Joshua, but we are still in warfare. And yet the way we do it is by praying, by telling people about Jesus, by encouraging each other. And we, and we fight knowing that Jesus has won the battle. Jesus has absolutely won the battle when he died and arose again. And yet there's still work to do. So it's a bit like this. In, on the 6th of June, 1944, 250,000 troops, American troops, landed at Normandy. And with that amount of troops on that battlefront, the war was basically over. The Second World War was basically over. There's no way that the Germans and the German uh, allied uh, nations would be able to withstand all those people. And yet, there were still battles to be fought. There is still work to be done. Jesus' death and resurrection meant that the war on one level has already been won, but there's still work to do. And my question is this, what are you going to do? Are you going to be a warrior in God's war and pray and tell people about Jesus and do all the things that, that people really can't see, but really is causing battles to be won in the spiritual realm? That's God's war here. And finally, let's have a look at God's justice. If you have a look at chapter 12, you get the vibe of chapter 12 from verse 9 onwards, right? You see that basically it's a list of kings, the king of Jericho, the king of Ai, the king of Jerusalem, and so on, that, that they kill. Now, now, it doesn't make for exciting reading unless you're a history geek like me. And so why would God put this in the Bible? Well, I think if we have a look once again about this idea of kings and these kings coming against God and his people, we see, see, we see why this passage is in the Bible. Because all the way through the Bible, leaders, the, the, the people that are in authority, the kings and the rulers are always going against God and his people. We see in Psalm chapter 2, oh, sorry, Psalm, verse, Psalm 2 verse 2. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. What is, what is happening? Kings are rising up, up against God. In Matthew chapter 2, you will remember, if you've read it, that Herod, King Herod, wanted to kill Jesus. In Revelation 19, verse 19, you see that picture of the kings of the world banding together against Jesus but the other thing that you see all the way through the Bible is that these kings who oppose God are also ruthless in the way they dealt with their people. They oppressed people. And we see also that from history here, these kings were oppressive to Canaan. And so here we see uh, is here we see in this pa passage, chapter 12, is the destruction of corrupt rulers who are going against God, of corrupt leaders who are opposing God. Can I just say for people like Rahab, and there would have been others who bowed the knee to God, they wouldn't have the same problem 
problems with all these kings being killed that than we do. I remember a number of years ago seeing um, footage of when when um, the Americans came into Iraq and they toppled down a, a statue of Saddam Hussein. And you saw the people going up with their own shoes and hitting Saddam's um, effigy in the face. It was, it was the ultimate insult for a Middle Eastern person to do that. They were cheering that this, this brutal, oppressive leader had been brought down. And I dare say many of the people in the, in, in, who bowed the knee to Yahweh from Canaan would have been doing the same. See, this God is a God who is a warrior who will bring justice. He won't only bring justice back then, but he will bring justice in, in the future. And that is a very, very important thing. If you feel like justice hasn't been done, God is a God who will bring justice. If you are looking at Afghanistan right now and think, well, what, God, what can God do? Well, God is a God who's a warrior who does bring justice. That's the beautiful thing about God. And here's the thing. If we forget that God is a God of justice, that he's a warrior who does bring justice, well, is there any hope for justice to come? If we take that away from God, is there any, is there any hope that justice will come? But what the Bible says is, yes, God is a God of justice. He will defeat the, the oppressive kings that opposed God. And yet the Bible also says that God is a God who is tenderhearted, who is forgiving, who is loving. That the warrior God not only um, will deal with injustice and sin, but the warrior God actually took injustice and sin on himself when he died on the cross see god is a warrior for you and yet he is tenderly towards you also it's how you how you deal with him that counts he's both a warrior and he's tender-hearted a number of years ago i saw a picture in, in a book i read i was trying to find it this week i couldn't find it unfortunately but it was a very striking picture it was this it was a Navy SEAL all dressed up in Navy SEAL gear. He had his gun next to him and lying on his, on his chest was a baby, uh, 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 probably 18 months old. And I remember reading about this particular guy and how he had gone into a, a city and there was, this, there was this little baby who had been... Um, he, her parents had, had been killed by a bunch of the rulers who, who were just terrible, terribly oppressive people. And so the American army went in and dealt with these, these rulers. And yet what happened to this baby? Well, they took it back to, to, to where they, um, they were based and stationed. And because he was the one that picked it up, this baby wouldn't go anywhere else. And so he, for the next two weeks, would feed it, would clothe it. When he needed it to get it to sleep, it would sleep on him. He was a warrior who was so tenderhearted and compassionate to this child. That is the God we believe in. A God is a warrior, yes. 
but he is so tender-hearted and compassionate to his children. That is the God that ultimately will fight for us and yet we can feel safe in his arms. It's not either or. It's actually both and. Let's pray. And then I will um, let Will ask me some questions that you put in the chat. Let's pray. Father God, I pray. No, thank you that you are both the God who is a warrior, but is also tender-hearted and compassionate towards us. Lord, I pray that for those of us who uh, struggle with this picture, Lord, help us not only to see how you reveal yourself, but also see, uh, help us to see who we're meant to be in response. Help us not to pick up arms against you, but help us to, to worship you as our great king. And Lord, I, I do pray, and I thank you that you are a God of justice, who for, for us who um, have been dealt with unjustly, we thank you that you are a God who will bring justice one day. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.